right, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, y'all. We are around in third and coming home. And Solomon starts off in Ecclesiastes talking about how everything's vanity. Remember, it's a breath, it's a vapor, and nothing seems to matter because everything passes away. If you adopt that mindset fully, though, and you're consistent in it, there's no real good reason to work hard, is there? There's no reason to be skilled in your labor. If you just exist and then you don't, what difference does any of it make? But we have to remember, that's not Solomon's viewpoint. He knows there's something more to life and something bigger than all of us, someone, in fact. And Solomon knows that he himself is immortal. And so are all of we. Immortal souls. That's what we are. And if so, then how shall we live? How should we live out our days? How should we think about work and what can we expect in the future? Let's try to find out. Let's, let's go ahead and read now Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth, and if a tree falls to the south or to the north, and the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. It's the word of the Lord. I know I sound like a broken record some of the time as we're going through Ecclesiastes, saying some of the same things over and over again, but it's important for us to be reminded so we're picking up what, what Solomon's putting down, right? We're, we're getting the point that he's trying to make. And one of the things we've said repeatedly is Solomon is borrowing a worldview. We've said that a lot. He's, he's cornering the reader's reasoning. He's, if the reader believes there's no God, or if there is a God and he's not sovereign, right, he exists but he's not in control, then the reader can't really make sense of the world that he's living in. And Solomon's made that point. That's the corner he gets painted into. There's no order and there's no meaning. But Solomon keeps weaving in and out of this worldview, we've seen. He shows us that the God of Israel, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, he is God. And he is good, and he is all-powerful. He's in control, and there's nothing that happens that he is not decreed. And because God is, and because God is all those things, the world does have meaning and purpose, and so do we, and everything that we do. 
Solomon's told us already that our work's not hopeless or meaningless. It's a gift from God for us to be able to enjoy in the time that we're here. And we should do it with our might or our muchness for his glory. Now Solomon starts to hone in a little bit more here regarding our work. And he tells us not only should we enjoy it and be content knowing that it glorifies God, he tells us it matters. God uses it. He uses our work. We're not just going through the motions. We, we should be content with our work knowing that it glorifies God, right? But he, just, he doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't just let us do it for the sake of doing it and just going through the motions. God expects obedience from us, but he promises blessing and fruit from our faithfulness and our obedience and our diligence in our work. And we all know we can't always be sure of what God's doing, he does give us sort of big picture stuff, but the details he keeps to himself. The details belong to him, and he keeps them to himself a lot of the time. That frustrates us. It's hard to know why God chose to bring this into my life at this time. Doesn't he know what I've got going on? Yes, he does. Right? It's hard to imagine why God could allow that awful thing to happen. But he does assure us he has a plan, and it's good, and he uses all of it, all of the good, all of the bad, all of the disappointment. And what we're supposed to do is trust him. He says, cast your bread upon the waters, and trust he will do something with it. Now, we read that, and it's like, we're supposed to know what that means. Like, what, what, what is that? Well, in ancient Egypt, the, uh, the farmers knew that if they threw their seed out over the top of the Nile and it just created like this film of seed literally on the surface of the water of the Nile and if they did it at the right time before the water receded then the seed would be deposited deep in the rich soil on the river's banks and then after a period of time they would have a rich harvest what Solomon says here using that illustration then is that our work should be like that not only should we work as unto the Lord because it's the right thing to do and glorifying to him, but we can expect a return for our faithful labor to him. Now it's worth noting the return is not often immediate. God rarely gives us an expectation of immediate gratification. It's a delayed gratification, but it is sweeter. And he says you'll find it after many days. We get this idea then, y'all, and this is important, that we get to participate in the mundane activities in the world that Solomon says look like vanity with a promise that it will matter. He uses it. He uses all of it. It will be glorifying to him and it will be beneficial to us even when we've already left this place. Even if he doesn't grow what we've sown in this life until we're dead and gone, he knows you were faithful. He knows where you were faithful, and your faith will be rewarded. That's what storing up treasure for yourself in heaven, where neither moth nor rust can destroy, looks like. Jesus wasn't kidding when he said that. This is a promise and a command. God says, cast your bread upon the waters. Do it. And don't just do it because I said so. Do it because, because if you do, I'm telling you, something will come of it. It doesn't matter if you don't see how or when or why. 
Trust in the Lord. He says, I'm going to use it, and it will be a blessing. The other thing he says here in verse 2 is that we shouldn't just hoard what we do reap just just for ourselves. We should be generous. He says, give a portion to seven or even eight. A portion. You know, not all, not everything. And, And not just scraps either. You know, if I told you I'm going to have you over to my house to eat with my family tonight, okay, and I'm going to give you a portion, what would you expect? Everything that I have, everything that I've prepared for me and my family and you, all of it? Of course not. Would you expect that you would only get whatever's left over after me and my family have eaten? Again, of course not. You're going to get a portion, right? You're going to get a meal, just like everyone else. Not enough to stock your freezer, but not a little snack either. A portion. We are able, because of God's promise of provision for us, that we can be generous with what he has given us. So much so that we can afford to give a portion to seven or even to eight and still have plenty. That's one of the things God promises we will be able to do when we work diligently for him, being faithful and obedient followers who trust in his promises. You know, God always assures us, I'm not going to let you down. I've never let you down. I never let my people down. I'll give you enough to give away. In the next few verses, three through six, God assures us that even when it doesn't seem like there is a reward for our faithful obedience in our work, like there's no real fruit of our labor, there, there really is. He says in verse three, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And the idea we get is that some of it must be wasted then, Right? You know, because the rain, you know, I needed rain to fall on my crops, but then it fell over here too, not on my crops, so that, that part wasn't any good. But no, that's not, right? That's not the case. God uses all of it to care for his creation. So we, we might not see how our hard work or our giving is directly benefiting anyone, but we can see that we can trust God and that we, we trust that God knows who sows faithfully and he will do something with it. And you will receive blessing. And then in verse 4, he says, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Here's what you need to hear Solomon saying there, okay? If you're trying to time everything just right and know exactly how every penny you give will be used, you, you won't ever bring yourself to do it. If all the planets have to align and the stars have to line up in order for you to make a decision in doing the thing that you're supposed to do, you'll never bring yourself to do it. You say, well, the wind is blowing, so I don't want to sow seed now, or it'll just blow over all over the place, and some might get in my neighbor's yard, and he might grow some stuff too. Well, who would want that? Right? God forbid it might benefit others, right? Solomon says, if you won't apply yourself and work hard until you're certain of how it will all directly benefit you in the short term, or you won't give charitably until you know exactly what it is you'll be getting credit for, you won't do it. Don't be like that, Solomon says. Cast your bread on the waters. If God is sovereign, and Solomon has spent 10 chapters in Ecclesiastes thus far establishing that he is, then we know that he will use all of it. He'll use all of it. It will be glorifying to him, and it will be a blessing to you, and it will be a blessing to others around you. We can take his word for it on that. 
You know some of the Christian men I admire most? Of course, I love, uh, love the old Puritans and some of the you know, famous and faithful preachers of our day, the Sinclair Fergusons and the R.C. Sprouls and Vody Bauckham's and the like, but it's the no-name guys who show up where crowds are gathered and preach the gospel in the open air with no shame. I'm not talking about the ones who hurl abuse at people. We can all think of plenty of bad examples of that. I'm talking about the ones, though, who plead with sinners to turn from their sin and turn to Christ and faith. The ones who offer life-giving words to dead men, to people who are dead in their sins and trespasses, and without shame just exclaim the gospel. And they all know everyone looking at them thinks they're crazy, and they still do it. They just don't care. They are disruptive, yes. But none of us sitting here this morning who have been saved are living uninterrupted lives. God interrupted my plan for myself. He disrupted me. He disturbed me. I was just minding my own business. And he came and assaulted me with the truth of his gospel. He arrested my soul. And I know that's true for some of you that have come to faith later in life. That's what those men who preach in the open air do. They cast their bread upon the waters where they know people will be. It kind of, frankly, it kind of irks me sometimes. I've heard Christians say before, well, I just don't know how effective that is. Tell that to George Whitfield. I mean, spent more time preaching in the open air than he did sleeping. We, we have a great awakening to show for it in history. The point is, you don't size everything up before you do it. You say if it's worth doing, you do it. God says it's worth it. You know, faithful street preachers are just one example of that. Only one, but I think a really good one. You know, they don't, they don't do it so they can walk away with another notch on their belt and say, I saved X number of people today, right? That, that's not what it's for. That's not their expectation. They're not working with an ex- expectation of immediate gratification so that they can pump themselves up. You know, the, the people where the harvest is, where it's found, where it's reaped after many days, after casting the bread upon the waters, they may not know or meet those people whose lives that affected and who, who were converted by that preaching until they're in heaven. And praise God, that'll be a joyous day. They know good and well they can't save anyone. Only God can, and he does, and he does it through the hearing of his word, and so they take it to as many people as they possibly can, to places where it can be heard loud and clear. That's meaningful work, right? That's an example of casting bread upon the waters, and there are many others. You know what else is casting bread upon the waters? Your tireless efforts in raising those boys and girls, mom and dad. Your tireless efforts in raising those boys and girls. Some days it feels like your best efforts are wasted, doesn't it? Like the rain is falling everywhere else except for where you want it to. And it's just, just missing it. They're not wasted. God will water those seeds and astonish the world with your faithfulness through the snotty noses and the dirty diapers and the skinned up knees 
and he will work through the endless pile of laundry. That's good news for you, Amanda. It feels like you're just throwing it all out there all the time, right? And nothing seems to stick. God says, no, keep throwing it. I'll make sure it sticks. We never know how God will use us, but we know that he will. And I think one of our greatest fears is we wonder when we're older whether our life will have really mattered. I think that's a fear a lot of people have. Christians and unchristians uh, alike. Uh, I remember the story one of, one of my professors told me in seminary about an old man who'd been a pastor his entire adult life, and he retired n- knowing how hard he'd worked, but feeling like it wasn't really worth anything. Felt like a bit of a failure. You know, he was in a tiny little church that never really grew. He never saw really any conversions. And he thought maybe he missed God's calling on his life. Maybe he was called to do something else, and it was never about this ministry thing, because nothing ever really came from it. But then at his retirement party, a man comes up to him and says, you don't know me, but when I was in college, I came to this church, and I sat in the back, and I listened to you preach, and I was converted. And now I'm a pastor. God called me into ministry. And I'm serving at a a church that's vibrant and growing. We've seen tons of people come to faith, and I just wanted to thank you for being faithful and preaching the gospel. Was his work worth it, y'all? Did he get to see it right away? His work was worth it. God rewards faithful obedience. He does. He does. We can take that to the bank. We can count on it. He gives us his word that he does. Two things we know for certain, and these are the things Solomon keeps repeating, keeps pounding into our heads, is we don't know what God's plan is, really, but we know he's got one. And we can trust him. We have every reason to believe that we can place our trust and our confidence in him. We have a hope for the future, and we get to live with the expectation of a greater reward. Because we are immortal souls with a living hope, verses 7 through 8, we can have joy in life and have an appreciation for each day as a gift. We can wake up every morning and we we can say, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it and mean it and actually mean it. Verses 9 and 10, Solomon's talking to the youth specifically. And so I am talking to the youth specifically as I talk about this. So y'all perk up, okay? He says it's good to be young and adventurous. I love this because it's something I I think I've mentioned several times throughout the series. We as Christians, we 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 don't have to pretend. We don't, have, we don't have to pretend. We, we know the struggles of life that are real. We don't pretend like, you know, the, the world's all sunshine and rainbows all the time. It's not all lollipops and Skittles. Like, things go bad, and we get to be honest about that. And we get to have hope even in spite of all of that because of who God is and what we know he's doing through his word. We get to be young and adventurous. It's good to explore and discover We're not these cranky, crotchety people, right, who just want to live in a bubble. 
and pretend like the world is, is something different than it is. You know, this isn't leave it to Beaverland. This isn't Mayberry. Okay? We get to be honest about the way that the world really is. And there are joys and comforts and, and, and pleasures that God intends for us to have, but within bounds. That's the point. Okay? He says, it's good to be young. Be young when you're young. You won't get another chance. It's, it's all vanity. It's all passing away. It's all fleeting. Be young while you're young. You won't get another chance, but be reminded that you're not without boundaries. Okay? Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So there's boundaries. Have fun, but play by the rules. There's, there's no better way to have fun. The best way to have fun is, is, is to play by the rules. You know, I think of our boys, for example. The, the only time that they're not having fun when they're playing Battleship or Uno or chess or checkers or whatever, well, everybody has more fun when they're winning, granted, but the only time that they really start coming apart at the seams is when somebody has decided not to play by the rules. Then that's when somebody starts crying foul, blowing the whistle, and they come look for either me or Amanda in our black and white striped jerseys you know, to have to referee and sort the thing out. But the, the only time the, it stops being fun is when somebody chooses to not play by the rules. God's boundaries, y'all, his law, his rules are freeing. They are not limiting. It's a lie of Satan to believe that God's law is stifling or that his design for your life is for you to never have any fun at all. That is a lie. It's a lie that was believed in the garden at the fall that God is holding something back. He knows what you really need, what you really want, and whatever that better thing is, he's holding it behind his back and keeping it from you. That is a lie. It's not true. A prayer we should pray for our children is that they would never think that they can find more enjoyment outside of his will and law for their lives. There's nothing better and there is no greater joy than the blessing that God has with you, has for you, within his boundaries. They're good for us. His law is good and it's good for us. God's law is good and it's good for us. Can't save you. Can't save you, but it's good for us. You see the difference there, don't you? You've got to be able to tell the difference, right? The law shows us God's perfect standard and our inability to keep it. It shows us our need for a Savior. It points us to the reality that we've missed it completely, and no matter how hard we try, we can't do it. And so the conclusion we come to is someone's got to do it for us. A man, in fact, has to do it for us. A man has to represent man by obeying the law fully. Well, how do we pull that off? When, how's a man going to do it when man has fallen, when we're born into sin? Well, God has to intervene then, doesn't he? God has to come and take on flesh and be born a man to obey in man's place. Merry Christmas. Okay? But then we know that the God-man, Jesus, has to atone for our sins, too. He has to die for us having broken the law to begin with. And we say, well, how's that work then? If the guy who was born in order to, be a, to obey for us is then killed, then how can he save us? Well, he's got to rise again from the dead. Happy Easter. And so living as a redeemed people 
Having Jesus as our representative who took our punishment and gave us his perfect obedience means that the law is no longer a curse for us. And if it's no longer a curse, it's a blessing. Living a life that pleases God, living a life in bounds, is not supposed to feel suffocating. And if it does, maybe you're still trying to save yourself. Stop it. It'll never work. There's freedom and blessing in the boundaries of God's law. There's freedom and blessing in it for you and for others. It's the way in which God is salting the earth and enriching the lives of all of his creatures. And here's the bottom line in all of this. I'm wrapping up, okay? What we do matters because what Jesus did matters. Life matters. What we do in it, our work matters. It matters to God. It matters to you. It matters to everyone you know, even, even those you don't know, even the people that you will never meet. It matters to them. Your life and what you do in it matters because God uses all of it. This is his world, and he has a plan for it. And that plan includes us in a weird and sort of mysterious sort of way. And it's good that you don't take credit for that, right? You, you can't imagine how he could possibly do it. Well, that's a better place to be than think you're God's gift to everyone, right? But I want to encourage you this morning and assure you, God really does include your work, your labors, your words, your ambitions, your thoughts, your, your, your family, all of that. He uses that. It's a part of his plan. So work heartily as unto the Lord. This is his world. He has a plan for it. It includes us. And it's a plan with a happy ending. Not a sad one. Be reminded of that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord God, we do thank you that you have a plan. Because those of us that have been around for more than 15 minutes know that when we make plans, they often fail. We've seen our plans blow up in our face. We've learned our lesson many times that we're not in control. Somehow we still think we are. So we give it another go, and we're disappointed all over again. But God, your word gives us assurance and encourages us that even in our failures, even in our missteps, even in the midst of sinful pasts, you are at work. You are about redeeming. You are in the business of redeeming. God, we thank you. And I pray, Lord, that each of us here this morning, as, as we go out from this place and go about our work this week, that we would remember who it is that we're working for, that we would remember that it all counts for something. Lord, that you would give us the enjoyment and satisfaction you intend for us to have in it so that we might do it all the more. I ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Song sheets. We have a closing song. It is well with my soul. We have that assurance in our great Father that even though life is hard, God is always...